0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have an interview episode for you. So, today's guest is my friend and fellow ultramarathon runner, Nick Curry. Nick has a very unique background in the sport of ultramarathoning, he got to it at a fairly early age living in Arizona and helping his brother co-found one of the biggest ultra marathon race organizations in the United States, if not the world, uh, AeroViper running. So Nick's early years with that included coming up with some of the software that they use for, for timing and things at, at different meets and events and stuff like that, as well as just getting it in a position to have what I believe now is somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 events per year. So if you live in the Arizona area you're per, and, and run trails and ultramarathon type stuff, you're probably very familiar with the amount of offerings and opportunities Aravipa puts out there for those interested in that type of an activity. Uh, since then, Nick has uh, moved on into other areas of his career, but has continued to participate in the sport as an ultramarathon runner and part owner of Aravipa. And last year, Nick even though his name was recognizable, really blew up because he went on a tear when it comes to racing. He did I think it ended up being a total of 12 ultra marathons over the course of 2021. And it culminated with an American record at the 24 hour distance at the desert solstice track invitational, where he ran just about 173 miles in that 24 hour time period. But some of the other events he did the last year that totaled The number that he did included the Coldwater Rumble 52K, the Black Canyon Ultra 100K, Crown King Scramble 50K, Damn Good Run 40K, Whiskey Basin Trail Runs 91K, Alexander County 24 hour, six days in the dome where he did 100 miles, uh, Bears Ears Ultra 50K, Kendall Mountain Run, that was a 12-miler, so not an ultra marathon, but a race nonetheless, Hotfoot hamster, six hour run rabbit, run hundred mile pass, mountain, 50 miler. And then, as I said earlier, the desert solstice track meditational 24 hour to end his year. He also was ranked the number two ultra marathoner in North America by ultra trail magazine. So quite an accomplishment last year, definitely worthy of a little rest and relaxation after that push, but Nick has some goals this year as well, which we talked to a bit major topics we hit on For this episode was kind of highlighting his year last year, but there was two other things I really wanted to talk to Nick about, because I think he's got some unique perspectives on this. And one is his pacing strategy. One of the reasons Nick believes he was able to race as frequently as he did last year is he's incorporated a fairly routine negative split approach to racing. So for those of you not super familiar with ultra marathoning, it's super common. uh, The vast majority of people even the people winning races are going to positive split these things, meaning they're going to run slower at the end than they did at the beginning. We talk a lot about why that might be, whether that's a psychological thing, whether that's like an experience that kind of leads you to believe that is the only way to go versus the way Nick has done it. And uh, it was fun to talk to him because I have negative split some races and it is a totally different experience and an experience I feel like you almost need to have yourself in order to fully appreciate. So it's fun to kind of get his perspective, how he came up with it, what kind of motivated him to even attempt it in the first place when it kind of went against the standard approach for a lot of folks and what got him there. Also, we talked a bit about his diet. So Nick has an interesting perspective in the sense that he's tried a whole bunch of different dietary approaches when it comes to ultramarathon marathon running, uh, including low carbohydrate. So I wanted to hear his take on that what his view is on it, whether he thinks one works better than the other for him across the board. What are some of the reasons, the pros, the cons, all that kind of stuff. So uh, for those who are interested in the nutrition side of things, that'll be an interesting point of this conversation. So that is what we have for the guest interview for today. So before we get rolling with Nick, just a few announcements coming up on future episodes. I have a few guests that are either in the hopper or ready to be recorded. They include a guy named Graham Tuttle, who's also known as the barefoot sprinter on social channels like Instagram and TikTok. Graham is really interesting to me because he focuses a lot on health in terms of your mechanics, the way you position your body, the way you strengthen your body, and then participate in sports like running. I wanted to hear what he had to say to me and what kind of, uh, information he maybe have or suggest in terms of, me keeping my body healthy for ultramarathoners as well as other people who participate in the sport of running. We did a lot of focus on things like ankles and hips, and we sat down, went through a battery of workouts and then recorded an episode and talked about some of his approach, as well as the things we went through. So if you're interested in seeing some primers on that, I have put up some videos on Instagram that have highlighted some of the movements that I felt were really, really valuable ones for me that I wanted to share as soon as possible. So if you're interested in kind of seeing some of those, you can head over to my Instagram page, which is at Zach Bitter and check those out. That episode is actually currently up on the show Patreon page. So if you cannot wait to listen to that one and hear what Graham has to say, you can access that through the show Patreon page, which can be linked to through the show landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Uh, scheduled to record are a couple other names that I'm excited to bring. One is Carl Egloff. Carl is currently on a tear, kind of like Nick was, but he's focusing on high mountain, high elevation routes. There's these things called fastest known times or FKTs, which is essentially a route that is typically not conducive for race settings, but are still interesting point to point a lot of times or loop courses and routes where people try to see who can go the fastest on it. So you do a solo project and then compare your time to the history or the list of historical attempts at that. And, and, and Carl has been taking down some big ones lately, including Mount Kilimanjaro. And a lot of these places that he's targeted are formerly held by a Killian journey, who is considered one of the best ultra ultra mountain runners of all time. So I'll be interested to hear how Carl got into this, what he's currently doing, how we approached some of those previous attempts and everything that goes into making Carl who he is. Uh, also coming up, Jana Breslin. Jana is a health and fitness enthusiast, a pretty big social media person as well, hosts a podcast and has recently gotten interested in regenerative agriculture. So I have a lot of questions to ask Jana, including what makes someone of kind of her background, decided to get interested in a regenerative agriculture. And I think it'll be fun to find out what the future of that is. Because when I think of everything that Jana's doing, I don't necessarily first think, well, I'm going to get into regenerative agriculture, but I do think we're going to need to see people like her get into stuff like that if we want to see enough movement in that type of uh, farming. So That one is yet to be recorded, but as soon as it is, I'll put it up on the show Patreon page as well. Otherwise, it'll be available on the public platforms as soon as it is ready. Like I mentioned before, if you want to support the show, you can do that through the show Patreon page. That gets you early release episodes and ad-free audio. If you want to do that, head to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. If you don't like Patreon or third-party apps but want to contribute monetarily, you can do so on that landing page as well through a quick donation link. I now also accept cryptocurrencies on there too. So if that's your thing, you can contribute that way. If you want to support the show, but not monetarily, you can go a long way by liking, subscribing, and sharing the episodes with your friends and family when you find ones that you like. Another great way to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast is through the show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors has a product you're interested in trying out, You can let them know that you support this podcast by ordering through here. You can find all the show sponsors' details, links, and discounts at the show sponsor landing page, which is zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors, as well as in the show notes of every episode. This episode's sponsors include Optimal Carnivore. Optimal Carnivore knows that organ meats are some of the most nutrient dense products on the planet. So Optimal Carnivore has shared with us their beef liver, organ meat, and bone marrow products in the past, but want to let you know about the new addition to their lineup. It is a nootropic called Brain Nourish. Nootropics can potentially boost overall brain function, focus, and productivity. Optimal Carnivore includes lion's mane mushrooms and grass-fed beef brain. Each serving has 1500 milligrams of 100% organic lion's mane mushroom and 1500 milligrams of beef brain sourced from the highest quality regenerative farms in New Zealand. If you would like to give Brain Nourish or any of Optimal Carnivore products a try, they will plant a tree for every product sold. Simply head over to amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code human save 10. That's human save one zero to receive 10% off your next order. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Element. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient, single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, to the gym, or while traveling. My go-to's at the moment are their citrus flavor during my longer runs, and their chocolate flavor in my morning coffee. I will usually use about one packet with about two liters of liquid, whether that be the coffee with the chocolate version or straight water with the citrus flavor for my workouts. For $5 shipping, you can try out an eight flavor sample pack and get a feel for which flavors are your favorite and if you're going to work them into your rotation. So if you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmntcom forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes and at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, Today, I've got a fun guest and good friend, Nick Curry. Nick, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Zach, stoked to be here with you.
0: Yeah, you know, in honor of your American record in the 24-hour event at Solstice last year, I made sure to throw on my Desert Solstice Mm t-shirt, so... We're, (laughs) we're celebrating still here for, for that, that accomplishment. That was a cool, a cool, uh, um, accomplishment that you were able to achieve at the end of what was a very heavy racing season for you.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like
1: you, you especially appreciate it having been in a very similar situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same race even.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing too, is uh, the, I think the first time I met you in person was at desert solstice. It was back in 2013. And I actually probably owe you, I would guess somewhere between seven to eight minutes of, uh, or seven to eight minutes off my finishing hundred mile time that year, because I was running around the track as you are at that event. And, uh, I think I was, I think it was probably around mile 90, 90 and a half, somewhere in there. I was convinced that I couldn't go a second per lap faster. I just knew it in my head. I was like, I can maintain, but I'm not going any faster. And that had me projected at like somewhere in the 1150 range or something like that. And then, I mean, this shows how ignorant I was back then with just the sport in general, but I didn't even know there was a 12-hour event, much less a world record for it. So you you told me that like 90 miles into the race that I was on pace for what would be the 12-hour world record if I kept going at 100 miles, just to make sure I didn't like stop when I hit 100. And for whatever reason, that kind of gave me like a little bit of a refresh of the goal. It's like you you spend over 11 hours thinking about one thing all day because I was there targeting the American record for 100 miles, and then all of a sudden at mile 90, I, I must've really needed a change of like mindset or a change of, uh, some sort of, uh, target or something like that. Cause when you told me that, I think I sped up like three or four seconds per lap for a good chunk of that last, that last hour, which certainly got me down closer to 1147 than I would have been on that day. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of a, a fun, a fun story. I don't think I've mentioned on this podcast, but, uh, that was the first time I think I met you in person.
1: Yeah. And that's like, I've told people that story so many times. And like the thing that even sticks out on top of that, like we were sitting there at like the timing table watching and we're like, like we don't know if you're going to be able to get the American record at all. The way yeah. like you're hurting like 10 miles is still a long way at that point, And you're slowing down and you just looked awful. And <laughs> then we realized and we saw like this, like he actually could get a Giannis Kuros world record. And maybe, yeah, like, so that was like, I jumped off and I had, had to go tell you. And as soon as I told you, it was the same thing. Like you suddenly looked, you were faster and you looked so much smoother and easier. But then the remarkable thing to me is you hit another additional level of that. Once you actually got the American record on your way to get the 12 hour world record is you looked even lighter, even more effortless in like this, basically like a celebration of what you had done that day. And it's just, it's always stuck with me how much, like, we talk about how mental it is, uh, but it's hard to really understand what that means. Like, usually think like, oh, you could push harder than you think. But really, it's sometimes the opposite, where, like, you can actually enjoy it more than you expect, uh, at times you wouldn't expect. And a lot of it's purely in our head, it's just a little tiny switch if we can find it.
0: Yeah. It's the hardest thing to describe. I think when you're talking to someone who hasn't run a hundred miles or even someone who has, but hasn't gotten that experience yet where, although I, I mean, they, they have to a degree, I guess, I don't think there's a whole lot of hundred mile finishes where someone didn't kind of feel real miserable and also much better later on, and then be left there kind of wondering how did I continue to do the event or the the activity that made me feel so miserable and have that actually make me feel better. But it, it was probably my first real glimpse into how powerful the mental side of the sport actually is. And, you know, I'd done a few races, quite a few races at that point, including a a hundred mile or so. Like I feel like I maybe should have had a better appreciation for the mental side of it at that point, but that was like a very clear indication of like, okay, this is something that I should be thinking about training as much as like kind of the physical aspect of it. And, and I think that just adds to the excitement of the sport. Yeah. The other, you know, along those lines too, and one of the topics I really wanted to talk to you about is just the way you pace these things, because when you think of endurance sports, even up to the marathon, you can get so close to race distance and training, and you can almost simulate a huge chunk of it. If not the entire race, a lot of times for, uh, for workouts and things like that, when you get the Olympic distance stuff, but when you get to hundred miles, there's a, there's usually a ceiling on what you can really get away with in terms of replicating race day and training outside of multi-day workout type structures with back-to-back long runs and things like that. And it's uh, it's always interesting to me to think about just how you kind of prepare your mind and what you expect or what you think the limitation is and how that actually feeds into how you end up performing on the day. Because my, my thought is like most ultra runners oftentimes get into this thought process of, it's a hundred miles, Obviously my legs are going to feel better in the first like fifth to fourth of the race than the last fifth, fourth of the race. But that thought process oftentimes I think pushes people into this mindset of bank time, bank time. And although I think there's maybe some, some banking that is approachable, but I don't think it deviates as far away from even, or even negative splitting in your case, uh, as, as people think. So they put themselves in this position where they almost feel like, oh, at the end of the race, I'm going to feel miserable no matter what I do. So I might as well run fast out front and, and then I'll pay the price at the end, but I'll, at least I'll pay the price with a a quicker time to that point. Whereas your approach is quite the opposite. You're like, I'm going to bank energy, probably both physically and mentally, I would imagine, and then unleash it in like the back third to quarter or so of a race and actually negative split these things. Can you just like talk to us a little bit about that? Just like how you maybe kind of started thinking about that. Was there anything that maybe stuck out in your mind that indicated that that was the, the path to follow? And yeah, I'm just interested in kind of how that all started.
1: Yeah. There's like so much there with what you just said. uh, And so many interesting things and so many like truths of ultra running that I have violated in the process <laughs> of coming to where I'm at now. And it started for me a long time ago. Actually, I like, I, I've, tried to recreate how I got here. And I think it started in 2008 when I ran hard rock and like I was, it, I got into the race less than 24 hours before it started. Like I didn't even really understood what the race was until I got up there two weeks before and went on course marking days and heard all the terrifying stories of how like rough that race is and went into the race. My training back when I looked at the log was like 30 miles a week, primarily on like canals around Phoenix. <laughs> Uh, totally grossly inappropriate for hard rock. Yeah, <laughs> and I I went in with the goal of don't die, and I walked every up. I walked every flat, which is counter to what people think because they think they have to make up time because of the cutoffs. And then I just like cruised every down as smooth as possible, and I got fifth place. I ran 31 hours, which is especially off that fitness, just like unheard of. Uh, and it made me really think like, but so I guess, especially what stuck out in me is the last 20, I felt better than basically the rest of the race. Like I I popped back to life at the end and Kyle Skaggs broke 24 hours that year. And I beat his last 20 mile split, like handily. I think it was like 10 or 15 minutes faster or something. And just felt like not the best of the race, not better than when I started, but I was like, I don't know how I feel so good. And I was just hammering and I was flying at the end. And I'm like, whatever I did, there's something to this and I wanted to do this again. And so that's kind of where like the desire to finish fast came from. And then the more I like thought and reflected on it, something that really stuck out at me around that same time was like marathon and below, like it's almost a given you want to like, even to slightly negative split. And even the positive splits that we're talking about for a reasonable, like optimal race, is like what one or two percent positive at most and more than that it's like you blew up, you hit the wall like it's terrible if you were positive splitting by 10 or 15 percent uh it would be a, a, like a, no one would accept that as being a successful race in the marathon and below like road racing world. but if you go and look at 100 mile times like 10 to 15 percent slowdown those are the people who are like exemplary pacers and who have strong finishes and everyone else is doing slowdowns of you know 20 30 40 percent. And we think that's completely normal. And so it was just this bizarre realization that like, why does that stop exactly at 26.2 miles? And then it not only completely goes out the window, but the opposite is assumed. Uh, And so I like dwelled on that for many years and I deliberately negative split my first race in 2011, but it was super contrived. Like I jogged the first half and then I hammered the second half and I still only barely negative split. Uh, and then I kind of shelved it for years and then five years ago, I decided to revisit it and like, basically say, I, I tried to find data, like who has even negative split at ultras. And there's almost no one, it, it, even if you can find a couple cases, there's no information. And it mostly seems by accident. Uh, and so mm-hmm. like, uh, I decided like, I'm just going to go for it and I'm going to do whatever it takes to figure out negative splitting. And the first several times, uh, they were fun. Uh, it's actually really enjoyable to negative split because instead of feeling miserable, like you finished really strong, uh, but they were not optimal. Like it was clear I would be going faster if I started faster. And that's one of the biggest criticisms is like, sure, you can negative split, but like, the whole like, yeah, you're going to be tired at the end. So you might as well bank time. And like the best analogy I've come up with, and I'm at the risk of uh, embarrassing myself with knowledge of the NBA. <laughs> uh like three pointers as as i understand it like steph curry especially and just in modern times there's a lot more three-point shooters uh and like the, you could ask the same question like why was, weren't three pointers a bigger part of the game before and i imagine and from what i know part of it was like people could try more three-pointers but they weren't that good at them and it took saying i'm going to get killer at three-pointers and train myself over years. And then once you had those effective skills, suddenly the three pointer became a very valuable tool, but naively for someone who had never trained specifically for that, they would try it once. And then it wouldn't work for them because they didn't have that experience and then give up on it and say like, this doesn't work. And negative splitting is very much the same way that the first several times I was worse negative splitting than I would have been positive splitting. But over time, I got better and better. I figured out a bunch of details. Uh, the, one of the biggest details is there's like two different ways to do it wrong. And the first one I started with is you go out too easy and you're basically like loafing it. And then you have energy left at the end and like you feel good, but you left time on the table. The other side is like you're trying not to lose too much time early on. So you're focused, but it's almost like spinning your wheels on the car. You're still outputting too much energy. And so even though you have more left at the end, you're still kind of burned out because you were too focused. And there's like this middle, like, I want to call it like the Zen middle ground where you're both completely taking it easy, but also you're being really efficient with your time. And so you lose minimal time the first half, and then you have all that extra energy to spend the second half to just slowly ramp it up more and more to the finish. And it took me several years to really start nailing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I want to say like, and this is a little bit of just my own experience, but I think this probably mirrors a lot of people's experiences in shorter distance endurance events, you kind of learn that lesson in workouts. So like if I go out for like a, like I say, like doing like maybe eight by one kilometer or something like that, and I'm super ambitious and I go out and I just like full throttle that first one. And then like gradually depreciate you kind of have this like low level, uh, success rate in the workouts. And then you eventually think, okay, I'm going to try this differently. And you adjust, you adjust, you do that over the course of four to six weeks. Eventually you get to the point where, you know, like, oh, if I do that first one K at this exact time, I can maintain that time and maybe even run slightly faster for the last couple and feel good at the end of the workout. Like I'm actually executing it versus holding on for dear life. So then you kind of carry that over into the races themselves. Whereas with ultra running, you get to these longer distance races and you find yourself in a situation where the real kind of learning grounds end up being events themselves. So you have this situation where you kind of have to almost kind of take the route you did to some degree, at least at this point in time, and kind of figure out where those lines are in order to actually execute a proper negative split versus like what you described, a more aggressive negative split because you went up too slow or, get a little greedy and think, okay, this is actually conservative when in reality it's not, and then blow up at the end, which is one I've done multiple times. (laughs) So um, is that, is that kind of how you see that too?
1: Yeah. So there's actually a bunch of interesting things there. So the first is like the need to run longer in order to learn these lessons in order to then execute it at your A race. And like you mentioned last year, I raced a ton and had what seemed like a really successful season. And it was um, but one of the interesting things is all those races I didn't care about as races like mm-hmm. except desert solstice. That was the only one I really cared about. The rest were all like buildups and trainings. And I was more concerned about like experimenting and learning at them and rolling straight through them, like without having to taper much, without having to recover much uh, as part of the bigger picture. And negative splitting those themselves helped on all of those levels, like everything from like the negative splitting itself was experimenting with negative splitting uh, to like, I recovered so much faster and didn't need to taper. Um, like one of the things you said earlier that people think is like, you're going to wear out by the end. You might as well make time while you're feeling fresh. And I think about it exactly opposite, which is like, if I'm going to run harder, I'm going to be doing more damage. If I do it at the beginning of a hundred mile race, I now have to live with that damage for 90 more miles versus if I put that damage on at the end of the race, like there's almost no miles I'm beating myself under the ground with, with that damage on it. So it's actually like way more efficient to go slower early on because you're not running through so much damage on so depleted of muscles. Like you're postponing a lot of that. And that's really like from my experience now where you beat yourself into the ground. So most people, you kind of tire yourself out the first half and then you beat yourself into the ground. The second half, once you're on those tired legs, your form is getting sloppy. You're not able to keep up on everything else. Versus me, like I hit halfway feeling better than the start because I've warmed up more. And then the second half, it's it's like the race was half the distance in terms of the damage I do to my body. So last year, hundred mile races, I recovered as if they were a 50 mile, 50 miles felt like they were 25 miles, which is essentially now talking about a training run. Mm-hmm. And so I could just stack these things all year long in a way that I never thought possible. Like I remember in 2018 solstice, which also was a a good race for me. I negative split that it was one of my first big ones. I did the fall 50 and like that thing really beat me up. Uh, and I had to taper for it and recover from it. And then I started doing those almost every weekend at some point this past year. And so just my ability to recover and build in these races where I could experiment a lot, like just compounded on itself to let me learn a lot more, a lot quicker. And the last thing I'll say that was unexpected, and I think it was actually one of the biggest keys to the 24 hour is I started creating muscle memory around the positive, like mental space of negative splitting. Mm-hmm. So like, if like, I just assume I, I like, I'm sure this is mostly true. Like everyone kind of dreads the end of an ultra, like the the last 30%, where you really start to feel tired and heavy, and you know, you're going to have to gut it out and hold it on hold on to it. And like, even I'm like, if I have any shot at this world record or not world record, American record, I'm going to have to pull out all the stops at the end. Like, I know I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to have to push through things I've never pushed through before. Um, but like leading up to that, something I was realizing was happening is the negative split itself got me like giddy, like a a kid in a candy store where I got to halfway and I'm like, oh, now I just get to run faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And I would look forward to, and like, get excited and like my emotions would just turn so positive that it would fuel me. I just, all I wanted to do was run more ultras so I could run the second half of ultras, which is opposite of people dreading it. And I'm like, that will, hopefully that will help me at the 24 hour, but there's no way I'm going to feel that good at the very end. Uh, but I did like, I, 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 the last eight hours felt the most smooth of the whole 24 hour. And even though like Yes, I could tell. I'm over 100 miles. I have 50 more miles to go, or whatever. Uh, it was shocking how good I felt, and it was better than I ever could have imagined feeling after that kind of effort. Like if you like hit watch any of the live stream, I looked smooth, and I felt that smooth. Like other than the fact that like th- I could implode at any moment, I didn't, and I felt better than I did early in the race in a lot of aspects of like being out there running that kind of a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you preempted my my next question with kind of how you used a lot of those races that you did before desert solstice. I think you ran like, what was it? 11 or 12. It was like 11 races, I think. Right. Last year. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's about right. And then like even more training, runs. training on-
0: runs. Yeah. You did like a hundred K training run on a track, if I remember correctly. And, uh, yeah. that's obviously an ultra marathon, regardless of what the, the, the pace is that you're doing it at. So it's a, it's interesting that you used that as kind of a way to whittle down, that margin of error to the point where you could expect all right here's my goal the american record for 24 hours so then you kind of know the pacing you need but knowing that that pace was going to be something that you could use your negative split protocol on must have felt pretty good going into the race itself
1: it did and that 100k was part of the last thing that finally convinced me I wasn't crazy for going after it. Like (laughs) earlier in the year I had, I like from desert solstice the previous year, the way I blew up and the decline was so fast at hour, like 19. um, Like the hard part about 24 hours is how fast you go down. And once you get off that pace, even a little, like there's no recovering from it. Mm -hmm. And so there were all these unknowns, like what happens once I get to hour 20, it's hard to or impossible to simulate that without just going and running a 24 hour. And so a lot of these races were efforts to simulate various parts of that. What do I expect? Like, I know what it feels like at mile 80 of a 24 hour. I know what it feels like at mile 120. So can I be building my cumulative fatigue and then throw myself into a race that's 50 miles long, where I'm running the whole thing from start to finish on tired legs? And can I focus on form and staying smooth and focus on my attitude and keeping myself in a good mental place, even when I feel like garbage? And so like all these different races were an attempt to simulate that stuff. The hundred K was like, actually kind of push my fitness, see what it feels like to push hard and really hurt. And then six days later I did a, a trail 50 mile. So I got that. Like, I feel like I'm at 130 miles. My legs are super heavy. Uh, it's like hard to carry on, but keep my form smooth, keep everything together, focus on nutrition. And it was like that combination together that made me feel like, like, I finally actually have confidence that I'm going to be able to be in a better mental space. I'm going to be able to pay attention to all all the little things, even while like my body might be screaming at me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing what, like, I don't have as many negative split experiences you do. I had a lot of them, I think kind of congested where I was able to learn a lot in races, especially in, in 20 2018 and 2019, I think I had some good looks at, at crown King in 2018. I don't know that a negative split, but I felt much better the last third of the race than I did the first two thirds. So that was kind of the same, at least like mental, like emotional, like experience San Diego hundred was like the first hundred miler where I felt like I actually enjoyed the last 25% of that race more than the first 75%. And then, um, when I broke the previous world record for hundred miles in 12 hours, I negative split that race. I I'd actually like, it'd be cool. Like the hard part with some of these, these courses is you can't really get a perfect gauge of what a negative split looks like. Cause it's not always on a track. Like we have at desert solstice, but I'd be curious as to what my like JFK race looked like on paper from a negative split standpoint, because I was really conservative over the Appalachian trail and then pretty hammered the canal pretty hard. So my guess is even if you, if you could figure out some sort of like elevation to flat metric and, and convert it all, it would be a negative split on that one as well. And, and it's like, what you said was like, it's, I was just thinking in my head, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly how it feels. It's just this weird thing where you do start looking forward to the part of the race where you would have historically been just dreading. That's the part that gives you nightmares, of the weeks leading into it. And it really does flip it on its head.
1: Yeah. And actually like to the trail comment, cause everyone's like, Oh, you figured this out a flat, but how yeah. would you ever apply it to like a trail race, much less a mountain race. And the first major race that I feel like I nailed the like not negative split in terms of time, but like negative effort mm-hmm. on an absolute scale, not a relative scale was hard rock. So hard rock 2017, uh, was right when I really started focusing on all this. And like the major metric that I have, and it's actually how I figured out most of this stuff. Like, basically I figured out this one single thing. It's like this one weird trick. uh, And like all of the other things became obvious as I just kept practicing. And that was, I want to like run my best and fastest miles 80% into the race. And if that's your only rule, you will figure out everything else. Like everything that I figured out, you can go figure out on your own. And like the reason why is like, if you like on an absolute scale, like you don't have to figure out what was going up, what was going down. It's just at 80 miles of a hundred mile, can I run faster than I was running any time before? And can I hold it to the finish? And suddenly you're like, well, holy crap, like no way. Like I feel like garbage at 80 miles. Uh, I both have to like go way slower the whole early on. I have to really take care of myself. Because even if you go slow, you might not feel good at the end. You might just feel like, well, I want slow, but my legs are still tired. So you have to figure out the preservation part. And then you have to figure out the mental part of even if your legs could theoretically move that, like, how do you actually feel good at the end? How do you actually get to a mental space that gets you excited about running fast? Is it that you're chasing people down? Is it that you're looking forward to be at the finish? There's all these different things that you can figure out for yourself that work just by trying to make that last 20% feel the best.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. I think like when I talk to my coaching clients about pacing for races, you, or I should actually rewind a little bit. When I talk to them about racing events towards their goal race, because I, mean, I think the ultra the ultra community is kind of funny like that. You'd get your folks who are like, I just want to pick my A race, and then I want to kind of hunker down and train for it. And then you get your folks who just love the events and they're like, I want to sign up for everything, but this is the one I really want to do well at. And as a coach, it's like, you got to navigate that properly. And I'm always telling them like, if you're going to do training races, that's fine because there's a lot of wins you can do with a training race. Like you get a practice, your, you know, what do you do the days leading into the race, the night before the race, the morning of a race, what is your like sleep hygiene pattern that's going to help you kind of relax the night before you know, what foods do you do best with the day before and the morning of, and then aid station everything that goes into racing. That's unique to that. It's like, a if you do it right, it's like a highly structured long run. And it just gives you that repetition that you lack with this sport because of its length. And the one that I think I more recently added to was like what you've been talking about, which is like, let's pay attention to how this goes too, because if you do it right, Not only should you be running as strong or stronger at the end, but we should be able to kind of hop right back into things within a week or so after this and not necessarily sabotage the training load of the next two, three weeks, because you went and spent your A race energies on on a B race. And I think that might actually be one of the more powerful tools with it too, is learning the pacing that will inevitably probably save you in some cases, hours versus minutes and some of these other things that can be valuable for them.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like it goes from like you, the, like one of the ways that I've described this to myself is you have like your, your early ultra runners, like new to the career and like, they make the mistake of like trying to get things to go right. And then you become a veteran ultra runner and you start expecting everything to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's how you improve is now like, it's not about like, well, this is the plan and I just need to make the plan work Uh, because you know, it's not going to. And so you get better at saying all these things could go wrong, let's plan for those. But I've really come back around the other way, which is, I found ways to guarantee that things go right. And I've gotten to make it reliable that things, if they deviate, it's only very minor. And those things I know how to handle too. But I don't have to plan for this huge spectrum of things that could go wrong, because I've gotten so good at repeating racing over and over and what happens late in races. And that like both makes it more enjoyable and takes out those potential like hour, multi-hour losses or even 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there that adds up.
0: hmm yeah. Yeah, it's really an interesting approach. And I think it's something that uh, you know, a lot of ultra runners would benefit from from hearing and and starting to kind of practice. If I could go back and do everything again it would be a lot more fun. I think to have like had that experience or that knowledge, like in the first couple of years of racing, because you just have more, more reps, essentially more reps doing it right and less reps doing it wrong. And that's just going to feed into you being able to whittle down, uh, whittle down, like where your potential is and stuff like that. So, uh, I did want to kind of pivot a little bit, but not entirely. And we've talked about this a little bit with like, the like hard rock and different trail races is one thing that makes your 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 season last year so unique is the events you ended up doing. So Desert Solstice, track Invitational, 24 hours is what it sounds like. It's a 400-meter track. You're there for 24 hours. You see how far you can get. That's about as controlled and about as a monotonous environment as you can find. You also did, not too much earlier in that year, the 100 mile and steamboat, which is the exact opposite it's much closer to hard rock than it is to desert solstice and when i look at ways to kind of like have a successful racing year at least by like the voting metrics for for ultra runner magazines ultra runner of the year which you were number two of last year is you either go and just crush like a big event or a couple big events like like jim walmsley style you know you win western states in record fashion and then you go and you like break the 100k american record or something like that so you have like this uh, you have like these two massive events or you do like as you did, you win a bunch of events, but you have like such a big Canyon between the style of events that people look at that and be like, wow, how did you execute a race in that environment? And then turn around and execute again on something completely different. Because I think that goes underappreciated by like someone who's casually watching ultra running. They think like, oh, it's a hundred mile race. This person's run a hundred miles fast before they're probably going to run fast here too. When in reality, you could have, an hour or two difference from one person to the next on two different environments. And then the exact opposite scenario, if you switch to the other environment. So is there something unique about you that allows you to go to steamboat and run hundred miles there? And, and I think you finished fourth in a very competitive field, if I remember right. Um, and it was more or less a training race for you uh, and then go to desert solstice a few months later and break the American record for 24 hours in, in an environment that would be unrecognizable compared to uh, what you saw out at steamboat.
1: Yeah. I I think the only thing that's really unique is just that I enjoy it. And I like, that's not unique. It's just a lot of people gravitate towards one or the other. Uh, and I enjoy all of it. Otherwise I think it would be hard to sustain both kinds of training. Like I do think if you enjoy both or to the extent you enjoy both, like there are strong advantages to doing both of them, you know, like If I just ran flat, I feel like I'd be so much more vulnerable to random injuries and other things as you're getting those like repetitive movements and you just get a lot of like it's almost like a mild form of cross training on the trails you work different muscles you mix it up. You get strong in a lot of like stabilizer muscles that you otherwise wouldn't tap into until late in a a road race Uh, and then the flip side is like you probably know this better than most too. Like there's nothing more fun in like a trail ultra than having road marathon speed yeah. where <laughs> when you have that like fitness, like both speed plus endurance and you know how to tap into it, it actually comes in surprisingly handy at trail races where, you know, you can blast flats and downhills especially later on the race because the the overall pace for the race is slower, but when you need those gears, they're there and they definitely come in handy. And so I do think both of them complement each other. And then the other piece is just figuring out how they fit together within a season. Uh, Like I tend to think you can get about 80% of the way to both types of fitness at the same time. But then if you want to push one or the other up towards like maximal fitness for a goal race, you almost necessarily lose some of the other. So like throughout the year, I stayed pretty balanced. Uh, And then yeah, post run rabbit. I really, really went hard into the flat track miles training, like a lot, like every weekend was out on the track doing 20, 30 miles a day uh, and doing that 100K time trial just to really sharpen up and make sure I was ready for the 24 hour. And my, my trail fitness definitely started to get more challenging, even though I was still doing the trails to help stay healthy. But I think that's really the biggest challenge is enjoying both more than anything
0: hmm Yeah, no, you hit it on the head. As far as I can tell, I think there's a huge component of just staying interested in the sport when you've been doing it as long as you haven't. I think people, I mean, you've been doing it for a while too. I think it's just, it, the only strange thing is that you, I don't know if I call it strange actually, but one of the unique things maybe about your career is you just had a great season last year. Whereas, you know, I think in our sport, a lot of times we'll see that happen. Like, I wouldn't say early because you do probably need some experience, but it's pretty rare that you see someone all of a sudden like being like in the sport. I mean, you've been in the sport as long as I can remember. And and usually when I've seen people come into the sport and have a season like you did, it's like in their first few years. And then it's like the question is, are they going to remain interested and able to continue at that frequency And you get, you know, you get a a coin flip kind of some people that kind of disappear and other people stick around, some people disappear and then come back and you get all sorts of different scenarios like that. But, uh, I find it really interesting when you have that kind of variance that you do where like, if I do a few, a few buildups for like a flat runnable race, there's a point where all of a sudden like I'm heading into another buildup and I'm like, oh, this again. And you've sort of like, even if you could take an off season deprogram a little bit, you still have this like pretty finite, like metric of improvement that you can really expect versus, Oh, I haven't been on the trails in any like big way or any primary way for the last six months. Now I get to kind of like restructure my training and my programming to be out on the trails versus out on the roads or the track. And that gets exciting. That gets fun. You see bigger improvements in shorter periods of time. And I think those like small wins keep you interested, keep you excited and ultimately feed into like better training a lot of times.
1: Yeah. And yeah, like I've been, I ran my first ultra in 2005. So it's like 16, 17 years now. And yeah, like, I I think a lot about kind of some of what you're saying with, like, you expect, like, if someone comes onto the scene, like, and is going to be very good, like, it's obvious that they're on a really steep upward trajectory. And then they, they tend to peak within a couple years, or at least get to like a certain level. And like, I kind of I tried to be competitive since I started and I really tapered down. And so you wouldn't even expect me to start making big gains again. And I think that's one of the things that actually got me to there is like I found this new purpose in some sense. Um I guess not even necessarily in that like I it took me about five years of really dedicated training to get to the American record. Um and at that point I would have assumed I was getting close to my peak, you know, like 2012 to use the 24 hours, an example, I ran 139 and then six years later I ran 155. So it's like a 16 mile improvement. Uh, And then I ran 155 again uh, two years after that. So it's like it would seem like I was tapering down. But in the process, what I did to keep myself interested, like part of it is what we talked about, like the finding ways to enjoy it, mixing it up here and there. I have years that are more trail. I have years that are more road because I tried to get into one thing or the other. But it was also always finding like the right level and goal to shoot for. It's like, it's like, you know, I probably like any goal, like attainable, but a challenge. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was also like the analytical side of me was trying to, to ask the question, like ultra running is still fairly young. Uh, if you look at like road marathoning below, like most of the training approaches are very similar. Most of the race executions are very similar. If you look at the top of the sport, they're converging on certain times where a bunch of people can run almost the same exact time and they're like, even if they can break a record, there's a bunch of guys right behind them. And so it's like clear that we mostly solved that. Uh, And ultras are the opposite. Like we almost see bigger and bigger gaps, like when records occur and there's all this spread out. And so like one of the things that's kept me more and more interested is like, can I be part of the, the group of people who are pioneering these new approaches and figuring out things that we haven't figured out yet? And like build the foundations for the next generation to go even faster and then i I, i'm like while i'm doing it i might as well see if it works for me and see how far i can push it and that's what led me from like being kind of like middle of the line 24 hour like obviously i was good enough to make like the national team but i was far from all the really best guys to now you know i've hit the level of being one of the best And I'll be the first to say I think that's only circumstantial that we don't have better guys trying it. Like I think if guys that are much better than me tried the things that I'm trying and figured it out, we would see far higher world records, performances, reliably, all that stuff. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think the the roads have definitely roads and track have definitely been less less populated over this most recent surge, and part of that has has a a little bit of a lagging in terms of like where we've seen like the the records get pushed, although we are seeing those get pushed to some degree. I mean, you're one of them, obviously. Alex Sorkin has been probably the biggest example of that, of like, you know, what happens with a guy who has like, I mean, he's tough because he doesn't really have a running background, but I would imagine if he had been like a middle school cross-country track guy and continued that through high school and then as a career, he probably would have been like a pretty effective Olympic distance runner as well as ultra runner. But, but yeah, it's interesting to think like what, what will, what we're going to do with the information that we're kind of learning. And part of me wonders if part of the reason why we haven't figured or we haven't accelerated that quicker is because of the relative increase in popularity in the trails versus the more controllable environments. Cause it's the control of environments where you can get a nice clean math equation out of it like we kind of talked about before in terms of like, actually like it's pretty easy to know if you negative split on a track versus, you know, at the Western States, 100. And I think that feeds into it too, where people get this, like it's clear as day when you look at your splits and you're like, Oh, I was faster in the second half than the first half, or right? I Slower in the first half than the, or slower in the second half than the first half. It just like you get a few, I, I think if, if we had, like you said, if we had like a dozen, a dozen Americans every year lining up at, desert solstice who were considered like the top in the sport. And just, you know, working through all these different scenarios, I think we'd see a clear advantage in certain strategies over others, but we just don't get that clear of a look on the trails.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting way to think about it. And I almost wonder if it's an excuse also to not optimize. (laughs) Like, it's so noisy already. There's so many big variables that you might think that optimizing all these little things is a waste of time. And perhaps it is today, but you could imagine as those could get just as optimized um, and drive those times down a lot further as well. Uh, But I also wonder if part of it is our sport being young and mostly like we're passionate people about it. And it's not like some more and more people are making it a career. But even that is, you know, not exactly the easiest thing because there's not that much money in it. And so we're still driven by passion and enjoyment and like the love of the sport. And like even doing it myself, it was thrilling for me because I'm so both analytical and like pushing towards a goal that's like a huge accomplishment. But if it was just me trying to improve myself a little bit, I don't know if I'd want to pay attention to all the things I paid attention to because then it almost becomes like a real job. But I also imagine that's what a lot of like shorter distance runners at like the big marathons, that's what they're doing. They have to pay attention to all those details. And so I could see that coming into the sport and becoming almost required to be competitive at some point. But also there's most likely a flip side of it, which is that's a lot of work.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're a pro marathoner and you can likely get away with somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 hours of training per week, you've got quite a bit of workday left to dive into the analytics and stuff before you start neglecting your family. Whereas as a lot of ultra runners. It's like, there's, you know, like you said there, you can certainly make it a profession, but you're probably doing other things as well to kind of supplement that and, and keep things going, or at least preparing for like, you know, the time after your, your racing career. Whereas in, in other sports, your career itself can supplement your retirement, and I think I think you're right. I think as the sport grows and we have more scenarios where there's a clear kind of off ramp for athletes, so they can spend more time focusing just on training and racing and everything that goes into that, like you've described, versus all the other stuff that kind of keeps their their finances afloat. Uh, we might see some of this stuff get explored a little closer, but it's really it's really interesting, and I think uh, you're certainly a pioneer in in this particular approach, and it'll be fun to see what what other people do with it. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are Optimal Carnivore and their new product, Brain Nourish, which is a nootropic that can help with overall brain function, focus, and productivity, and Element Electrolytes, which make convenient single serve electrolyte supplements that you can add to your favorite drink. Head over to zachbittercom forward slash HPO sponsors to see all the details, discounts, and links to the episode sponsors. One other question on this topic. Have you, how close have you looked at Alex Orkin splits for, I mean, now he's the 24 hour, the 12 hour, the hundred mile and the hundred K world record holder. Uh, actually, does he have the 150 kilometer too? I think he might, he might've gotten one like in route as well, but I mean, the guy just went like bonkers essentially in the last year and a half and, and did it in what I would have never expected, which is kind of like a reverse scenario. Cause when I think of like his world records, He got the 100 mile world record first, but really, when you look at his top performances, it was 24 hours, then it was 100 mile, 12 hour, then it was 100K. So he sort of went backwards. And I always thought like if there was going to be a guy who went and just kind of redefined what we all, we previously considered Giannis Kuros to be the best at, it would be the opposite. First, he's going to do a bunch of 100Ks, break that record, move up to the 100 mile, break that record, then go up to 24 hour and break that. But I'm, I'm rambling here, but like, did you look at his splits at all for some of those?
1: I did. I didn't look at the hundred K, but I was looking at some of the others and he's, he's definitely more on the even end, like positive. I want to say he made maybe three to 5%, something in that realm, Mm -hmm. uh, which, which is like much less positive than like Kuros or a lot of other similar performances. So he definitely like holds pretty strong to the end. Um, like even I, it was his, uh, the, the hundred mile 12 hour, I think it was like, I think he just barely, and actually no, it was a 24 hour. Cause he was like holding something like seven thirty pace the whole time. And it was just the last like 20, 30 minutes that you could tell, like he was toast. He was just barely trying to hang on as best he can. And like the last couple laps really were falling off, but like mm-hmm. through to hour, like 23, he held pretty strong.
0: Mm-hmm. And he got the record in that 23rd hour. A fair bit before the finish, so yeah, I think yeah. I my guess is I'm just thinking psychologically, like when he hit Carlos's record, he was probably like if he was really hurting, which I'm sure he was, like he was probably thinking like a sense of relief, but also like maybe like had he been, it had let's just say Kuros had run 192, uh, then all of a sudden I don't know maybe Alex is is hammering a little more there, keeping it together a little bit more, but yeah, I think you're right, like because when you look at it, because what did you say? a lot of races are around 15%, uh, in ultra running. And if he's at three to 5%, that's a massive difference and towards what you're saying. And it's also kind of scary in the sense that it's very scary and exciting that like, maybe he can go faster if he gets a little closer to even if your stuff is right on point.
1: Yeah. And like, to that point, I think, I think that his splitting wouldn't have much to offer in terms of benefits. Like, from if if we just assume even is the best, which it may or may not be like the amount of time that you lose for going a little bit, like the further you go, the more drastic the change is. So like the first like one to 3%, your absolute time isn't much different. It's more just like you'll feel better if you're negative splitting at the end, most likely, and you'll feel worse if you're positive splitting, and then the recovery might be affected. But the actual time difference is very small. Um, mm-hmm. is the blow up is smaller. And then like the more you go either way, either you're leaving a lot of time on the table early on, or you're blowing up so hard at the end that you could have slowed down a little at the beginning to not slow down a whole lot later on. And that's one of the ways I just tend to describe the benefits of uh, negative splitting too. like, go look at your own 100 mile races, especially like trail races where you get permission to walk or something. And you'll see like 60 to 80 miles, people slow down like three minutes a mile. And if, if you think about like, You might have put if you push 15 seconds a mile faster at the beginning, like think about even for a marathon, like it takes a lot of effort to go just a little faster early on. And you almost certainly pay for it later. And if you could slow down 15 seconds a mile and not put out that extra effort to take your three minute slowdown and make it a two minute or a one minute slowdown, you're like more than making up for that time. Uh, And so it's really the big blow ups the second half where like you lose the most time and you see those really drastic negatives, you know, negative or positive split percentages. And if you're close to zero within a couple percent, you're probably not going to gain or lose much time. Um, But I will say, too, on Sorokin, he he also and even Kuros like have a lot in common with what I did to get uh, the 24 hour record. Uh, which is like the micro-optimizations. And we've talked a little bit about that already, but I found out like Sorokin uh, figured out the same thing I did, which is you waste a lot of time stopping at Porta Potties. Yeah. And like a wide mouth Gatorade bottle is a very effective strategy that saves me several minutes, which adds up to like more yeah, like more than you think in the scope of the race for something that otherwise you're just stopping.
0: Well, an American record in your case, like it was, yeah. you were like a half a mile ahead of Morton's, I think, or approximately. So like, yeah, you take out bathroom breaks and there it is.
1: Yeah, no. And and that's actually like, that's another way I convey how close I was and why I was optimizing so much is I got the record with three minutes to go out of 24 hours. And Mm so think about where you've wasted three minutes. It's like you tie your shoes and that's a minute. And then, yeah, you stop to like change a shirt and that's another 30 seconds. Like you quickly lose the whole thing based on a couple trivial things. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it gets, it gets pretty wild when you think about those, those record of performances and it'll get even more wild once we get to a point where we're no longer blowing them out of the water, so to speak. I mean, cause you do see that from time to time too, where like you have, especially on the track and the roads where, where the sport is still growing, I think a lot more, uh, or has potential to grow a lot more, I should say. And It's like if you break a record by 20, 30 minutes, then you're like, oh, well, I mean, I could have stopped and used the bathroom a couple more times. I still would have broke the record. But when you need every last minute, if not second, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when you get to that point where that spear has been sharpened so much that you just almost from a physiological standpoint, you're at a point where it's like, yeah, there's not, I'm grasping for minutes and seconds versus chunks of time. And that's when you'll see a lot more wide mouth Gatorade bottles. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. And that's one of the other interesting things is like the marathon is clearly fairly optimized and the hundred mile is so far from it for so many reasons. Like one is obviously just competition and people of that caliber trying to go after it. Like you don't even have someone to run with all of these records are time trials. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you could put competitive aspects, say you could put a hundred billion dollars into the the sport of hundred miling and you just got so many people trying to go at it. So you'd get more competitors it still would struggle to hit the level of optimization of a road marathon because like it's harder to execute an all-out hundred mile um because like it's gonna risk doing more damage you probably can't do that many hard ones as quickly as closely like over your career um even then like the amount of things that can go wrong like almost combinatorially explodes like you're not only going four times as long which means four times the amount of time for things to go wrong, but each, you know, additional hour is more likely because it's building on the previous hours for things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Like new variables are thrown in there. Like marathons, you don't really have to worry, worry about calories, like get a couple hundred down and you're fine. But that becomes like the crux of hundred miles. Um, like there's all these other like physiological things that you're not really exhausting in a couple hours that you do in 12 hours, 24 hours. Uh, And so like all these factors are not only adding more and more things, but they then interfere with each other to like make the things that can go wrong, just go out of control. Like any combination could go wrong.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You get, you get a lot of variables. Some we probably don't even know about that are impacting in a, in a significant enough way that you're just trying to like figure out essentially on the fly. And uh, one, one we do know about, but I think there's. Uh, a variety of different ways to possibly approach it. And this is kind of a a nice, you you gave me a nice transition opportunity here for the fueling side of it. Cause you get to hundred miles in 24 hours. And if you just think of what, like what you would eat on a typical training day in 24 hours, and then think about running that entire 24 hours and what you need to do to kind of stay on top of your nutrition or how to strategize your nutrition in order to make that as smooth of a variable as possible. I think when you get to these longer distance stuff, it sort of opens up a larger window. I think there's, the marathon is an interesting one because at least the men's marathon right now, it's like it's a two hour time trial for the top end in the world. And a two hour time trial, like you said, find a way to get a few hundred calories, a couple hundred calories in, and you're probably good to go. Chances are you could figure out a way to do that on a moderate to high carb diet without too many issues, at least not consistent enough to make you change your fueling strategy you get to a hundred milers where most people are finishing on the trails in like a 20 to 30 hour time frame. It's like, you know, you have to eat, you know, you have to hydrate. The next question becomes how do you do that and how much strategy do you put into that versus the other things you're doing? And you're a great person to talk to about this because you've tried a variety of different nutritional strategies, both intra race and in your kind of day-to-day life to supplement like how your race day experience will go uh, what did you follow a specific like eating pattern for this last year when you were racing this much? And then ultimately ran the American record for hundred for 24 hours at desert solstice.
1: Yeah. So I've been doing like the, the OFM style, like some ketosis as a baseline, but putting carbs in like more frequently than someone that says they're on ketosis ever would. Um, and I've been doing that pretty reliably for the past, like three to five years in pockets, but I've also, I also like to experiment outside of very, like you said, various things. I've done everything from like um, the fruitarian style diet, not fully, but mostly, where it's like low fat, like just raw fruits and vegetables basically, uh all the way to like optimized fat metabolism to like a traditional high carb diet. I ran the 2018 Desert Solstice on that and negative split a 24 hour there. And so like I have I like to almost like A B test myself as much as I can with these different approaches to understand the trade-offs, try to tease out like what actually matters from them versus what doesn't, uh, like in there's a lot of conflating factors, which makes it difficult, but I feel like I've gotten some interesting learnings from it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one that I think is the big question or at least the big, uh, thing that people should ask themselves when they're deciding how to structure it is how are you going to be able to manage your nutrition on race day? So, I mean, there's obviously you want to execute workouts and things like that, but I think that's like, I think that's, you can navigate that with a proper training protocol where you're getting more specific as you get closer to the race. Cause if you're getting more specific for a 24 hour, you're going to be doing a lot of low intensity running, which puts you in a position where I think you can probably even, I would love to see someone do like a moderate carb diet for like say eight weeks through like a speed work session and then kind of transition to a lower carb diet in the like the next eight weeks as they're starting to optimize their long run development and things like that and see how that goes if that's enough time to kind of flip the switch so to speak Uh and see if that like kind of gives you the best of both worlds where now all of a sudden you're just like just wrecking those short intervals and long intervals and then you get into that second half and you don't necessarily need that much carbohydrate and you can kind of titrate it down and prepare your body metabolically for what you're going to need to do on race day. But what I like to think about too, is like when I'm working with people with this is like the question I oftentimes ask is like, what's your experience or what's your relative capability of targeting the recommendation of 50 to 70 grams per hour following a moderate carbohydrate diet. Cause if I'm working with someone and there's like 50 grams is like such a reach that like for them. We may benefit from bringing their carb intake down in their day to day life so that they can have a a smaller number to need to hit on race day versus, say, someone who's eating moderate high carb. They're probably going to have to flex up a little higher. Have you had a big range in your race day fueling when you've done like the higher carb stuff versus the lower carb stuff, or have you been able to kind of fuel similarly?
1: Uh, It varies a bit. So I definitely noticed that I need and want less when I'm on more of a low carb diet. So like a, a hard 50 mile on low carb, I'll do something like a thousand calories Mm -hmm. and on a high carb, I would need something more like 2000 calories. Uh, so like the difference there when I'm outputting a lot is definitely noticeable. Um, but also like the actual rate, like, I think I notice it seems to help with endurance overall, but I think there's some confounding factors that make it hard to say for sure. Uh, the recovery is probably more where I've noticed the difference is I seem to bounce back quicker when on a lower carb diet. And I assume that goes to the whole like lower inflammation and a lot of the like purported benefits I think are true, or at least they seem to be. But there's also another interesting aspect, which uh, I've heard is a criticism and I largely agree, which is like a low carb diet tends to force you to clean up like a lot of processed foods and a lot of other things. And I don't think that can be understated. And (laughs) one reason in particular, like, that sticks out at me is when I was doing the like mostly raw fruits and vegetables diet, I experienced very similar like differences in recovery where my recovery shot up. And if I just conceptualize like what I'm actually putting in my body, like a bunch of raw fruits and vegetables are like so nutritionally dense, like there's no empty calories in there. There's nothing that's just like my body's going to burn it and turn it into what, whatever, but not have a bunch of macro micronutrients. Like that's as good as you get. And then largely when I'm on low carb, it's the same thing. I have to be very thoughtful. It's harder to just like binge eat stuff uh, versus when I'm on like a traditional, like mid to high carb diet. Like while I generally eat clean, it's definitely easier to like sneak in, like even things like like breads and grains, which aren't necessarily bad, but they're not great. And they're still fairly processed in some cases. And they're also just kind of empty calories, like neutral, I would call them. Uh, and so I think like the nutritional density seems to be one of the most important things for those. Um, and then I guess get to, to get back to your earlier uh, question about the nutrition itself, like I've always done high carb during races too. And then it's just a matter of figuring out what sits well with you and what you can absorb.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you made some interesting points. I think like where I end up landing on that is If you can find out whatever nutrient dense diet you're most likely able to stick to at the highest percentage rate, that's probably going to be your target fueling strategy. So if that happens to be low carb, like if you can clean up your diet and consistently be more adherent to it than something else, then that's probably going to yield, at least on the recovery side of things, the best best, uh, opportunity to have success with it. And then if you're like a Michael Arnstein type of person where it's like just pounding fruit and nothing but fruit, essentially is your way to do that. Then, you know, perhaps that's going to be a way to, to maximize your personal opportunities within, within the sport. But, uh, the other thing, um, what was I going to ask? Oh, the, so in the, in the fueling during the races, you said for the 50 miles, you it was like a, a doubling essentially when you're mod high carb versus low carb, Is that fairly consistent as you branch out into further distance too? Or are you able to kind of get a closer target because you're just running slower?
1: I, I, I would say it converged the longer it gets again, like the 24 hour, I didn't count calories at all, but I would get, like, I was roughly targeting like 200, maybe 250. Like I could have been as high as 300 some hours. So I'm not Mm -hmm. that different. And like, part of it is like, at some point you have to just start doing math. It's like, I'm burning you know, 700 calories per hour. Uh, Like even if you're, you know, pulling more from fat, you're only pulling so much, like you're going to need to consume calories. And if you have them available and you can handle them, like for the most part, like you're probably gonna have a dip where you don't wanna eat something during a race anyways. So you need to be mostly on top of it most of the race. And you like, that's one of the big bottlenecks that can pop up is if you just go a little behind, your body's gonna struggle. So I try to stay ahead, if possible, so that I still have a buffer. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, and this actually kind of goes gets into what we were talking before with like how much analytics do you want to play around with. I remember in 2019 when I ran 11:19 for 100 miles, I had gotten a fat oxidation test done uh, close enough to that race where I was confident that the numbers hadn't changed too much, and it was like I I looked at the chart of the intensity spectrum, and I estimated that I would be burning 80 to 90 percent fat at the intensity I was going to target for that race. So then you just start running some math and you're like, okay, well, I need to eat X number of calories per hour to defend muscle glycogen. And I basically just did that. I just targeted I thought came to the conclusion that I probably needed somewhere between 30 to 35 grams of carbohydrate per hour to optimally defend muscle glycogen. I knew from prior experience, I could probably push up to 40 grams without risking digestive issues, which is I think one of the bigger reasons to maybe consider a low carb diet. If you're, you know if you're getting digestive issues pushing up you know into the 50 to 70 gram range that might be a good sign that you either have to like learn how to be able to tolerate it or get your fat oxidation rates up a bit but i, I kind of had those numbers at least confirmed in my mind that they would work and i mean they played out on paper about as beautifully as you could expect on race day too so that was kind of a little bit of an aha moment for me too is like kind of like you're saying earlier like however if you're really w- willing to dig into the analytics of things you can probably get a lot closer in predicting these things then all of a sudden you have a scenario where even though there's always gonna be some unpredictability with running 100 miles you can minimize the amount of it and then minimize the amount of potential mistakes that can pop up along the way
1: yeah and uh it's interesting because you're the first person that got me to be interested in like the low carb thing But I'm also hesitant when I talk to people to be like, I'm a low carb guy or something like that, because I think the category itself is dangerous. Like I view it more as a technique and like a tool in the toolbox uh, for the reasons you said, like there's benefits to understand, but it's, there's also the the risk of pushing it too far and hitting the limitations of it all the same. And in like daily life for me, that's like, if you looked at my like weekly intake, when I'm in high training, be like you're not low carb. Like yeah. you might be some days, but you eat a crap ton. Like you, you wake up some nights at 11 PM and go eat a bowl of cereal. Cause you just <laughs> you, you can tell your body's craving carbs and that sounds good. And you just listen to your body. And like, that's important to me. And that's probably why, like, I don't have to worry about, do I go to a higher carb or lower carb period of time? Like I've never optimized that instead. I just like, sometimes it feels good to be lower carb and nothing feels off and I'm having good workouts and all that. And so I lean into that. And sometimes like I really want some like pizza or something. Uh, actually on that note, and talking about the race strategy, like my reliable race fuel the night before every single race now is a, an entire large pizza.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember that at steamboat that you, that, that's when I learned your, your pre-race ritual. That was, it, it worked well. You can't, you can't knock it if it's working. So Yeah, Um,
1: and and yeah, you always have pizza around and it tastes good and I look forward to it. And I also think like that, plus my race strategy, which is like all kinds of carbs and things to your point too, like I'm confident I can eat way more carbs than I need in a race. Because sometimes I just eat a ton of carbs in a race. Like I'm not trying to over-optimize and make myself like so efficient that i rattle apart if I have to vary from it. And mm -hmm. I think that's also key is like, like anything else you want to train and simulate, uh, what you want to do. On the big race day, all the time leading up to it, so that you're used to it and you have buffer room.
0: Mm -hmm. So on race day, are you are you more or less thinking this is kind of like the baseline I need to hit, and then if my stomach is feeling good and I'm hungry and I want it, I'll take more. And you just kind of roll with those points of the race where you feel like you can get more in and go above what your baseline is maybe asking for.
1: Uh, somewhat. Like I feel like I'm even like as much as I'm analytic, uh, like. I'm way less exact than that. I'm just like, oh, I probably need, I don't know, two to 300 calories an hour. And I pack roughly that into a pack. And then like, I mostly eat most of it. And then I don't worry how much I have left. Uh, And I just, I guess I've developed the intuition around roughly how much to eat. And like, if I never bonked, then that was the sufficient amount. Sure. And Mm -hmm. also I never feel like I have to eat everything I have. If like, I kind of let hunger guide it. And I think I've developed that sense now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you're negative splitting races, it's a stretch to assume you're not defending muscle glycogen. I mean, it's it gets a little trickier when we're talking about distances as long as 24 hours, because like even screaming in is relatively slow compared to what we would see in like fast races. But on the other hand, when you ran 100 miles at the Pettit Center in leading up to that that race, you closed with like a 5:45 mile. That would be a pace where I would imagine you'd have to have some decent glycogen reserves in order to really even feel like interested in touching those sorts of splits.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I kind of rubber banded, I guess you could say where it's like, I'd better be doing, I don't know, minimum a hundred, 150 calories per hour. And like, I know if I start eating 300, I'm just going to feel bloated and I'm going to stop automatically. And then somewhere in the middle, any given hour.
0: hmm yeah, no, that makes sense. I think I'm usually around 200 calories an hour, maybe a little more, uh, routinely than you do it, but it it probably comes out to a similar number. I, the, the interesting thing I find is, uh, what you were talking about, which is, I, I don't see this nearly as much anymore. I think maybe just because I've, I've talked about it enough now, but you get the whole like, oh, well, how can you handle eliminating carbohydrate? And it's like, it, even even if I were going to be like, try to redefine the definition of a ketogenic diet to better map the lifestyle that someone like you or I lead where we're running, you know, hundred plus miles a week on a fairly frequent basis, uh, it's still going to be more carbohydrate, probably three times as many ca- much carbohydrate as a, a strict ketogenic diet. Then you move into what I would consider like a low carbohydrate category. Now you're eating about as much carbohydrate as a sedentary person would on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet often enough where I just don't really feel like I want a whole lot more carbohydrate in my diet. I, I mean, I, I could eat more, but it's not like something where I feel like that is going to be the limiting factor, the sustainability of it. And, and that's where I think I find it interesting where you almost just, you have a lifestyle that is extreme enough where now low carb offers up enough of everything where you're on the opposite of the spectrum where you're almost like, oh gosh, I got to eat again in order to maintain this training, this training load versus how do I stay within this parameter of not overeating?
1: Yeah. And I think it's interesting because like, there's a confounding factor in the, the low carb thing and the fat metabolism thing, which is high training load. And that I think is just as important to think about because like a lot of world records at ultra distances have been set by people on like, you know, like a, what, not a whatever diet, but just a generally healthy diet. And even myself, when I've been on more traditional diets, uh, the higher my miles get, the more I get the exact same characteristics as a deliberate low carb diet. And like, perhaps presumably you get enhanced benefits when high training and on that kind of diet in terms of fat metabolism, like even the tests I've done seem to confirm that. Um, but like I can go run way longer without calories when I'm running 140 miles a week on a high carb diet than when I'm running 80. Like I will bonk like anyone else at 20 miles or so versus like I could run 30 miles, no calories, mostly, uh, when I'm on a high carb diet, but high training. And so like, it's not the only way to get there. And there's a lot going on in the body as well to understand.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it is like, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm talking about this quite a bit inside the lower carb kind of community when they're interested in this stuff is just like, It doesn't really matter what your diet is. If you start running fast enough in terms of like what your body's going to be asking for, it's going to ask, you're going to improve your fat oxidation rates across this intensity spectrum by going low carb, but you're still going to demand some carbohydrate when you start pushing up on the further on the intensity spectrum. And at that point you get those, you still get those weird middle ground gray area intensities where you, they're, they're fast enough where you're going to demand carbohydrate to some degree, but they're slow enough that you can do it for quite some time. And then it's just kind of like a, a waiting game into where you hit that point where your muscle glycogen dips low enough and your body starts increasing perceived effort at that intense or at that, that pace. And then that's where, that's where it gets hard, if not impossible to stay on pace.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. And In this year, if I'm not mistaken, you're staying true to kind of the polarizing race nature, but maybe a little more extreme in terms of like, which ones are kind of priority in the sense that, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're in the hard rock 100, which I'm guessing is going to be one you're going to try to peak for. And then later this year, you'll be competing for team USA at the world hundred or the, the world 24 hour championships in, in, uh, in Germany. So How is that structuring going for you now? And what are you going to maybe do between finishing hard rock and kind of circling the wagons and getting ready for, for some loops, some uh, probably a mile loop, I'm guessing at the, the world, world 24 hours.
1: The world 24 hour isn't until the end of 2023. So I have some time for that.
0: Oh, really? Is it? Why did I, 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 why was I thinking that was the end of 2022?
1: Okay. I think that you might be thinking hundred K.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You got, yeah, you got plenty of time. Okay. Well, that just ruins my entire question. you got plenty of time to do both. <laughs>
1: yeah, So, well, and, and actually like Hard Rock, like I ran Run Rabbit to get the, a Hard Rock qualifier because the two other races I signed up for that were qualifiers got canceled last year. Um, but Hard Rock, I, I was stoked, like right when I finished Desert Solstice and I'm like, I don't know how I feel as good as I do at the end of a 24 hour like this. Um, all of that went out the window like six hours later after I went down for a nap and woke up. And had like a crippling leg injury that put me on, uh, (laughs) uh, crushes for quite a few days. Um, so, and and it's actually interesting because like, yeah, basically I'm going to go have fun at hard rock. I hope to get fit enough to still have a fairly fast race. Uh, but it's no longer like an a race just because my fitness faded, which I needed to, like I had five years worth of hard pushing. Um, one of the things going into the 24 hour, I'm like, if I actually set this record, I actually need to take a pause and stop trying to push myself because otherwise it's never going to end. So like appreciate what I've done and enjoy a real off season and let myself be fitness. Um, so I've kind of bottomed out there, I'm building up again, but it's not that you know far away. I only have so many months to train now. So like, I'll get fit enough. I'll go have a good time out there. Hopefully I'll still run fast, but like I, if I roll through that and come out uninjured, you know, cross my fingers for that uh, maybe I'll have something else later this year and I'll just take that when it comes. So yeah, I, I I'm in a nice place where an American record was never something I, I even thought about. And then I accomplished it almost before I knew it was a goal. And so I never have to have a goal again. And so now I'm in the, like, just go enjoy things period.
0: That's awesome. And I think it's, it's great to hear that too. Cause I think we've seen just so many examples of kind of you get excited with the sport and you have a year like you did last year and you want to just kind of roll that into the next year and the year after that. And that turns what could be a decade plus long running career to a two to three kind of like big, like, you know, explosive results. And then all of a sudden, like you're out of the sport altogether. Um, And, you know, it's, I had a year kind of like that in 2019. I think the, the pandemic maybe saved me from making that mistake <laughs> to some degree although i think i i like to think i would have been a little more conservative after racing as much as i did that year but but yeah i'm happy to hear that you're you're thinking about those things because i think you're you're probably going to have some some great great races coming up and i i love to see the variety of courses like hard rock and of races like desert solstice so i think someone if for nothing else to have you continue to talk about the, the, the pacing strategy. I think there's a lot of young up and comers will learn, learn a lot from you being around for a while. So, uh, it's, uh, good to hear. Yep. Awesome. Nick, well, is there anything else you wanted to chat about or that we missed? Uh,
1: I think the only other thing that came to mind, we were kind of touching on it earlier. Um, and I, I started, like, as I've talked more and more about the negative splitting, this conversation for some reason has come up, uh, which, is like how fast could some of these records go? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like one of the reasons is like people are like, oh, you're gonna go off to the world record now. And I'm like, first of all, no, like it's you know 20 miles further than I've run, and there are like individual limits. But it's very interesting to think, you know, especially with Sorokin and what he's doing, like, is he pushing closer to that? Because no one, you know, other than Kuros, like no one's in his realm. Um, and he's just taking huge chunks off of these records now. Uh and like one of the things that kind of ties back to some of the other things we talked about are like, what are the bottlenecks and what are the things that if we figured out would suddenly unlock much faster times. And like, I had trouble justifying why I thought the times were so much slower than I think they could get on the order of like, I think the 50 mile time could get somewhere in like the 420 to 430 range. Uh, I think the hundred mile could go 10 flat ish and 24 hours could go like 210 plus like, those are not exact by any means, but I think that's the order of magnitude we're looking at of where humans could theoretically go. And I I was talking with Jeff Burns uh, at some point about this because uh, he's one of the other people who can be very strongly opinionated about these kind of discussions. Uh, and like I feel like a let's run uh, <laughs> like <laughs> speculator when I when I throw out those times. Um, but but I think we could think about those times if we understood a lot better. Like, what are the actual bottlenecks when we're talking about running these longer distances? And like one of the exercises I did that further convinced myself that times could be much faster is look at the change in minutes per mile every time you double a world record like distance. So like start at a 5k and then go to 10k and then half marathon and marathon. And those records slow down by something it's like 11 to 13 seconds. And it's this fairly tight range of slowdowns which tells you like there's some physiological limit which is most likely you know your aerobic capacity that roughly predictably slows it down and the moment you get past the marathon and you double it to 50 miles the minute per mile pace slows something like a minute and 20 seconds uh which is way bigger than i would have guessed i would i would have guessed it's big but that's like so much bigger than the slowdown from a half marathon to a marathon like, I know there's a huge amount of improvement. And then from there, it's basically like, I think it's 40 seconds per mile for those other distances, Uh, which either says the bottlenecks at ultras are just that much more aggressive, you know, whether it's like metabolism or it's durability of muscle breakdown, or like, I actually suspect there's a bunch of like endocrine system like physiological like stress to the body that like we've evolved maybe evolved to handle for a couple hours you know maybe chasing an antelope or something and has not evolved for 12 to 24 hours
0: you're going to give up on that antelope if it's taken 24 hours to get it
1: <laughs> but but like my big question to myself is like if we actually could understand what those bottlenecks are more deeply and then figure out strategies to reduce that like for me mm-hmm the whole like endocrine systems, stress, like not firing adrenaline early on when you want to fire it. That was one of the keys for me to make such a big jump in the 24 hour is managing all that, keeping myself in such like a calm Zen state that I wasn't depleting any of those systems. And I, I saved them until like the last couple hours. Uh, and that helped me maintain where I think a lot of times we get excited and then we burn ourselves out without actually, you know, making any forward progress. And I also suspect when others have good races, like you could probably even talk about yourself or like, you know, maybe a Jim Walmsley at Western, I suspect it's because we go into that race so confident that we also don't start firing adrenaline early where everyone around us is trying to keep up with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if we understood those, if we could better analyze them, uh, could we overcome them and like greatly reduce by minute, you know, seconds to a minute per mile, some of these records um and even the fat metabolism thing like trying to get data on that is a frustrating experience for me only because the data doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and like the little bits of data we have are either anecdotal from individuals or there's studies that don't actually tell us anything so like Mm -hmm. the faster study is one of the best constructed but we've talked about this like it's studying three hour uh outputs like that's worthless to me it doesn't tell me a single thing about running an ultra like nothing interesting happens until at least eight hours, probably more like 16 to 20 hours is where I care about. And we Mm -hmm. just don't have any systematic uh, attempts to study these things. And like what knowledge could exist there that would help us to better plan and optimize these things. And I think that's the kind of thing that would start to let us tackle these times and like more reliably push them down.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hit on some awesome points there. I think like the faster study Biggest takeaway from that is just how you can manipulate fat oxidation rates, really, because like we we're running slower than we we're like s- slower than my hundred mile pace for three hours. So it's like a quarter of the distance. Funny thing about that is, uh, Dr. Jeff Ollick wanted that treadmill session to be like, I think five or six hours. Cause he thought you'd start to see some interesting stuff at that point, but there was like, it, he couldn't get the, he couldn't get him to let him go past three hours from, uh, since they're human subjects. So it was, that, that was the limiter. That's why three hours was picked for that one. Um, the other stuff, oh, the stuff you were talking about, I don't think 10 flat is a crazy prediction at all. Uh, I would have probably a few years ago, I would have probably put it closer to like 10, 20, maybe 10, 30, but now with the advent of the shoe technology stuff, I think 10 flat is reasonable. And if you look at some of the data on the super shoe technology, 10, 20, 10, 30, and 10 flat aren't that far apart from one another. If you are on one of the higher responders to that, that sort of tech. So What's to say that we don't figure something else out? Like you, you, you're talking about the other variables. Uh, If there is a reason to believe that that time gap or that pace gap between the Olympic distance events, when we go up to ultra distance becomes more exponential, I think it's going to be because there's variables, like you said, that were, are non-factors for marathon and below that become big factors. Uh, Digestion is probably a big one that we know about. But then, like you said, there's probably a few others that we're not even considering yet. So I wonder, like, at some point, do we figure out a way to be able to like process and use fuel at a much higher amount? And that gives you the, a big push up and closes that gap a little bit more? Because one thing that I thought was really interesting is I did the speed project this year, which is essentially a six-person relay, just under 300 miles from Santa Monica Pier in Southern California to Las Vegas you can fuel optimally for that. Like you're, you're, you're on for like at most 30 minutes at a time. And then you might have a couple hours off at certain spots. So like I was able to eat way more, stay hydrated, even take a nap. I think I took two naps, one, one significant nap. And it was just like the, the difference that made being able to like get in that much fuel and hydration without having to worry about a digestive issue, sabotaging it was pretty eye opening to me to the point where at the end, we had a four person rotation going, we were doing 800 meters split, like 800. We were basically doing a four by 800, but we were just repeating it over and over for like the last 14, 15 miles. And I mean, I was running like five flat and dipping under five flat for some of those. And I had over 60 miles in my legs over from the prior uh, 28 hours or so. And I would have just, I was just thinking like running that pace at the end of an ultra is a huge part of that is just i think having being able to stay better hydrated and better fueled so if we can figure out a way to be able to do that whether it's some new fueling innovation similar to the shoe technology that allows us to be more efficient with it who knows how fast it gets with some of this stuff
1: yeah and actually the digestion one reminded me of another optimization i made for solstice that i think is underappreciated so like people talk about overheating because clearly it's an issue but I think we, if we're talking about this kind of stuff, we should almost be talking about optimal cooling instead of overheating. Cause like, you know, me, like I am starting heat mitigation way before anyone else. I'm continuing it way longer than anyone else. I'm doing it at temperatures that most people are like, oh, this is actually a really nice day. And I'm like, no, this is not an optimal cooling. I need to cool myself more. And part of that is like blood gets pulled to cool your skin. And that means it can't be digesting. It can't be doing other things. Like you're competing for a limited resource there. And like, I've heard estimates that like the optimal temperature is, you know, it's somewhere between like 45 and 55 degrees, meaning if it's 60, you're overheating. Mm-hmm. And like over the length of time, I think as you wear more, it even plays a bigger factor in ways we barely understand. Like I found myself at solstice, uh, splashing water constantly onto my calves, which is more than I've ever. Like normally I have like cooling sleeves, which I did and a cooling shirt, which I did and ice bandanas and all that. But like, I, I just suddenly realized like my calves feel warm. They're probably cooking themselves. And I started throwing <laughs> water. And I, su- I suspect that played a small but also helpful role in like my legs not being as beat up at the end. And like it's those kind of little details that I, I think don't seem very important in any given moment. But and it's very hard to attribute. But doing that at hour three, you know, starting at hour three might either escalate and blow up into muscles getting super tired and worn and blown up or like your digestive system getting just enough stress that you can't get quite as many calories in and those that diff is the difference between you going a little faster for a record or not and it's not obviously connected to what happens at you know 10 hours or 22 hours or something like that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's really interesting i mean the topical cooling thing i think is a super fascinating topic. No one does it better than you. Uh, I've certainly learned from you with that, with that particular approach and have had a lot of luck with it. And even like, I mean, there's a definitely a physiological advantage to doing that. Bring your core temp down. I mean, you said it perfectly. You have a finite resource that's being used for multiple things. And if you're asking your body to use it for something that's unrelated to your performance on that day, it's just going to take from the things that are. And the other interesting thing is there's just no way you can stay hydrated enough during a race that long. Like you're going to run at least a small deficit. Um, Probably not to the point where it's like a huge performance dip, the way it would be in like a shorter race, but certainly something to consider when you're dealing with a finite resource. And then you get to the point, like you were saying like, oh, my calves are warming. I'm going to pour some water on it. Even just having a tool available to you, that's going to keep you determined to keep things moving in the right direction versus saying, oh, I'm out of options. Might as well bail on this effort is a huge win in these races. Cause so many races I've had that have gone well are the races where for whatever reason I decide when a problem occurs, Oh, I can push through this one. I can solve this one versus, Oh, I'm out of options time to pack it in and just, you know, damage control. And then that's where you see the massive positive splits and things like
1: that. Yeah. That was actually the biggest difference between 2020 desert solstice in 2021 if you talk to my crew they'll tell you like 2020 once my race went south like i shut down i stopped reasoning i like i became totally unruly to them Where they're just trying to help me to get back out there i'm like no like i got super grumpy and i'm like i'm done and i literally stopped for like 30 minutes until ryan montgomery was like stumbling around the track and i'm like oh crap he can catch me in the next (laughs) half hours stumbling around i gotta get going too Uh, but like, that was a big prompt for me to figure out how can I like, regardless of how I feel, even if I'm in a tough place, like by habit, by muscle memory, keep reasoning about how to fix problems and how to like pay attention to the little things like all the way from start to finish. And I did that completely successfully from start to finish at solstice. I had things unexpected go wrong. And I was talking with my crew constantly. They were helping me think through it. If I couldn't, I was fixing all the things I could. And again, like that was way more than three minutes worth of stuff that I fixed in the process.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it adds up. It adds, I mean, it adds up to an American record in your case. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to kind of hear all the, all the nuts and bolts that go into that sort of stuff. But Nick, you've been incredibly generous with your time and sharing this stuff. I, you know, I'd love to have you back on down the road to dive into another topic or as we learn more, maybe revisit some of these, but for listeners who want to kind of follow along with what you're up to, are there any spots where they can check in at what you're doing?
1: Yeah. Uh, Nick Curry runs, uh, I guess most places, I try not to spend too much time on social media, but I'm on most of them, uh, or nickcurryruns.com. I've got some blogs on my negative splitting stuff. Uh, theoretically I'm eventually getting a race report out about the 24 hour, Uh, but I, I seem to be very slow at writing it. (laughs) Did
0: did you put up on your website? I remember this was before desert solstice, but I remember when we were talking about, it might've been on a run. Actually, you had like a, a chart that you were using that was to help kind of determine the optimal pacing strategy where you kind of drift too far to one end or the other. Uh, and you had like a really cool, interesting kind of breakdown of how to maybe like start that process. Is that up on your website by any chance?
1: Yeah. So like the, the, a couple of the blog posts, like one of them goes into like that high level idea of how you think about calibrating. And then there's a whole blog post dedicated literally to like, okay, I want to try to negative split, but how do I figure out my actual splits? How do I do it? If it's a flat race, how do I do it if it's a mountain race? And I go into like all the crazy stuff that I've done over time. And so if any of those work, like that's a good place to check.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Nick. It was it was fun to catch up. We'll have to meet up with uh, with you and Lauren at some point, and uh, maybe not in Phoenix or Austin in the middle of summer. But but I hear there might be a spot near Tally Ride where we can cool off if if it works out.
1: Yeah, that's what the rumor is. I
0: love that. Awesome. Well, thanks again. All right, see you, Zach. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Alright folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.